We're going to be in the book of Psalms, starting in chapter 37. If you would like to turn there with me, if not, it will also be on the screen. Um, we're going to be in starting in verse 1 through 7. It says, Don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. For like grass, they soon fade away. Like spring flowers, they soon wither. Trust in the Lord and do good. Then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. He will make your innocence radiate like the dawn and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper, prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, it's so hard to believe some of these words sometimes that we pray and that we sing, and we sing as a prayer to you on Sundays, Lord. Um, sometimes it sounds just too good to be true. Um, and it's hard to believe that you are as good as you say you are in your word and in the Psalms. Lord, I pray that you would just allow us to taste and see this morning that you are good. To taste and see that you have a plan to prosper us for your good and for your plans that you give us hope, a hope that seems too good to be true, a hope that is hard when it's dark all around us, a hope that is so difficult when we see things that are happening in our world, um, like war and death and destruction, Lord. And I pray that you would just allow us to know that though this world is broken, you have carved out a place in time and history and called us to it, to be beacons of light, carrying that hope to the world. Lord, I pray that you would just strengthen each of our faith and our hope as we walk through the holiday season that can be so tough and so difficult depending on our family situations or whoever we're going to be spending Thanksgiving with or maybe we aren't sure how we're going to be spending that day, Lord. But I pray that you would help us to know that you are near, that you are kind, that you see us, you know us, and you love us. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Uh, if you can't tell, I've been uh, fighting off a little bit of a <clears throat> cold for the past week. Uh, as I said to someone else, there's only so much um, little kids spitting in your face and coughing in your face that you can take before it. Uh, gets internalized. So I started some uh, extra medicine last night, but if my voice sounds extra deep, that's that's what it is. I'm not trying. Uh, so I pray that the Lord gives me just enough to make it through uh, this sermon. But if my voice cuts out, chances are it's not the microphone today. It is, uh, it is just my voice cutting out. Uh, I once got lost in the woods. I grew up at the foot of Signal Mountain in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and starting in high school, I used to hike this trail to a place called Rainbow Falls. 
Basically, after a little hike, there would be a, a really steep portion where there'd be a metal wire going down, and you would hold onto the wire to kind of keep stability. Uh, but you also, once you let go of the wire, you would find yourself having a little bit momentum and trying to catch a tree just to not not fall down. I've done this hike a number of times, and this particular time, I went with a couple friends, but I had to leave sooner than they did. I think I'd promised my mom I would be back by a certain time, and I'm sure I was already running late, probably leaving at the time I said I would be home. On my way back up the hike, I made it past this steep part, and I came to a part that it looked like there were two paths. Neither of them looked like they were that wide or that great, so I chose, I think, the upper one. Needless to say, I turned out to be wrong. I realized after a little while I was lost in the woods in Single Mountain. And of course, because I'm lost in the woods on a mountain, I had no cell service. There were a lot more bushes and shrubs to move through than I remembered. But it was still daylight, so I just kind of decided I'm going to just move up towards the top of the mountain. And very fortunately, I found myself at the top of the mountain, uh, back at the golf course, right where the hiking trail started. I got back to my car and live to tell another tale I have not been lost in the woods since. I'm really thankful that I generally knew what direction I was headed towards, that I had my inter internal compass aiming at the right direction, upward. Otherwise, the story could have ended much differently. Who knows, maybe I'd be living in the woods to this day. Probably not at Signal Mountain, but a faulty or misguided sense of direction can lead us into great danger. Our compass makes a great big difference. In January of 1914, during a thick fog off the coast of Virginia, the merchant vessel Nantucket rammed the steamship Monroe, eventually sinking the Monroe. 41 sailors lost their lives in the terribly cold winter Atlantic waters. During cross-examination at the trial, the New York Times reported that Captain Johnson navigated the Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. He said the instrument was sufficient, sufficiently true to run the ship and that it was the custom of masters in the coastwise trade to use such compasses. His steering compass had never been adjusted in the one year he was master of the Monroe, though his compass seemed good enough to navigate him. This proved otherwise. The Times later reported that later the two captains of these ships met, clasped hands, and sobbed. Reflect on each other's shoulders. Reflecting on this, the philosopher James K.A. Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, said the sobs of these two burly seamen are a moving reminder of the tragic consequences of misorientation, or I might say a misguided compass. A misoriented compass can have drastic consequences, and unfortunately, we often don't realize it until we find ourselves there. And then we find ourselves further away from our intended destination than we thought we were. I think this is some of what Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 gets at when it says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Or as the New International Version translates it, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. I think this is what some of Psalm 37 is getting at, that you have this internal compass that is directing your life. And these two ways of the godly and the wicked are contrasted throughout the later part of Psalm 37, producing greatly different results. Our heart, in a lot of ways, guides us. And this plays out in a bunch of different ways, from the way you act to the way you speak. Jesus said in Matthew 12, For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. 
A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. Now there's obviously a whole other sermon or sermons there around the words that we speak and the power of our words. But my point is this, your heart, or rather what your heart is aimed at, affects the way that you live. If you name the particular issue that you struggle with, my sense is it probably goes back to a heart issue. So the question is, where is your heart aiming? Where is it taking you? And is it taking you where you want to go or rather where you are meant to go? What do you desire? Over the past few weeks, we've been in a series called The Water We Swim In about what it is that shapes us and is taking us where we're going. Um, a friend of mine who was a youth pastor uh, probably decades ago, I'll try to recall the story that he told me, but um, if you ever get around a person who was a youth pastor, particularly a while, uh, a while back, ask him some of their crazy stories. Uh, this is one of theirs, if I'm remembering correctly. They went on a beach trip and uh, they had the kids playing in the beach, whatever, and one of the kids was out there on a float. Uh, well, they lost that kid. I think for several hours, they could not find this kid. Uh, turns out he, I think had like fallen asleep on the float and been carried way down the shore. Kid was fine. Uh, luckily, I think this was before the day of social media. Otherwise, uh, this would have been a, probably a very different tale for that uh, that pastor. The water we swim in affects us often without us even knowing we're swimming in it. We look up and we realize we're much farther away than where we thought we were. In the past few weeks, we've been looking at this through a four-part framework found in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve sinned against God. Beginning with sight, seeing something, and then attraction, beauty. And then this week, we're talking about desire, and the next week, about action. My premise is that we often only focus on the actions that we do, but we really need to pull the curtain back and see what it is that's leading us to where we are. So today, we're talking about desire. In line with Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourselves in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, desire is an interesting thing. There's one camp that seems to have a hyper-elevation of desire. Do what feels good, as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. Follow your heart. To, as James K.A. Smith says, to act on whatever whim or instinct or appetite moves us. And if I might add, the general assumption is, as long as it doesn't seem to harm anyone else. If you want to offer more of a fair picture. The other camp, however, often operates with a negation or an ignoring of desire. Don't follow your heart. Don't listen to your heart. The scriptural reference would be that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Did anybody else grow up in church hearing that one? Uh, Buddhism, uh, the four noble truths that are central to Buddhist philosophy, would say it like this. Life is suffering. Attachment to desire causes suffering. Suffering ends with the attachment to desire, and the eightfold path is the path to liberation from suffering. In other words, there is a religious kind of tendency to, by ignoring or negating desire, that then I will be able to find ultimate fulfillment. The message of scriptures is more nuanced and complex than that when it comes to our heart that our heart and our desires are perhaps more like a compass in need of recalibration. That your heart, your desires can be an enemy or an ally to your life 
with God, or rather the life that you were made to live. Intuitively, we know this, I think. I sometimes want things that are not good for me. Anybody else ever want things that are not good for you? In addition to that, I often find myself not wanting to do things that would be good for me. An example would be, probably should go on a walk or go to the gym, but the couch looks really nice. Preach it. And the couch sometimes is what I need, you know? Um, especially now, I'm just going to own that right now with being sick. I just need to lay on the couch, right? Tell my kids. Let them let them tell me that. Uh, I look back at younger me. Maybe you guys do this too. At things I wanted to do, and I realized that they were not so good for me. Um, a classic, ex- I say classic example. An example I think of often is when I was, here's my youth pastor story or one of them. Uh, I one day... Uh, discovered that these guys had been playing baseball uh, in a tiny room. And I asked them, why were you playing baseball in the room? Because the result of it was that the window got broken. I said, what were you thinking? Oh, we weren't. It just felt like it was a good idea. Scott, you know exactly, I think you know exactly who I'm referring to too. Oftentimes that's what our decisions are. It's not that we fought ourselves into it. We just like felt like a good idea at the time. And so I did it. Why did I do it? I don't know. Just felt like it would be fun. Anybody else ever find yourself there? To reference the Apostle Paul, I do what I don't want to do. And I don't do the thing that I want to do. There's a war inside, a war of wants, a war of loves. You know this war. A part of you that wants to snap back at someone and another part that wants to be kind and thoughtful. A part of you that said you were done with this habit, but there's still another part that still wants it. You see, we're not just thinking people. It's not just about what we think or even what we think we want. It's about what we truly desire. So the question is, what is it that you truly desire? In his book, James K.A. Smith referenced um, another work where there was basically this room that you entered into and it would give you what you truly desire. Not like a genie where you go and say, this is what I would like, but you go in and you don't get to say it. It's whatever is underneath your heart. That's what would come into being. I think younger me, that would have scared me because I was kind of afraid of what it is that I wanted. Perhaps for you, though, you have a very specific thing that comes to mind, a thing that you would like. It might give you perhaps what is even past that, though. What is it that you hope this thing will bring you? Let's say you hope for a house. What is it that you hope that the house will bring you? Security, safety, acceptance, love. Our problem is not simply that we want things that aren't good for us and that we're aware of it. It's that we don't even know what we want. Martin Luther once said, the famous reformer, around the 1500s whatever your heart clings to and confides in that is really your god it seems to me that in modern existence that is so hurried and busy and noisy some of us don't even know what god it is that we're worshiping david foster wallace uh, who seemingly had no theological agenda if you were to google him you would see some people say catholic you'd see other people say I think maybe Buddhist, you see a whole range of other things. But he had a famous commencement address at Kenyon College, and this is, um, this is what he said. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. 
Everybody worships. The only choice is what we get to worship. Now, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, he said, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you, where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. He goes, and on one level, we know this. You look at ancient uh, mythologies, you look at ancient parables, and you can see these kind of uh, the theme is popped back up again. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect or being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious things about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they are unconscious. I would probably say that they are, there are some sinfulness in there, but they're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what we're doing. James K.A. Smith says the fundamental, the first, last, and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship is Jesus's, what do you want? In the Gospel of John, he says it's the first question Jesus poses to those who would follow him. Or even when he asks, will you come and follow me? There's versions of this. What is it that you desire? The truth is, many of us are guided and motivated by an inner compass that promises a particular vision of the good life will satisfy you. And the perhaps dangerous and scary part is often it is less so conscious and more so a vague, perhaps subconscious picture of what type of life would bring us happiness. Maybe it's a picture that you saw portrayed on media or in your life. If I get this, then things will be better. Maybe it's in opposition to what you experienced. Because I experienced this, if I get the opposite of that, then that will fulfill my longings and desires. James K.A. Smith said, We adopt ways of life that are indexed to such visions of the good life, not usually because we think through our options, but rather because some picture captures imagination. That's why over the past few weeks, we talked about sight, what we see and how we see and how we don't see things fully. And then about beauty, what we find attractive or beautiful or pleasing. Those things shape what we desire. Um, author of The Little Prince, whose name I'm not going to read out of fear of mispronouncing it, just to be honest, um, he succinctly encapsulates the, the power of this allure. If you want to build a ship, he counsels, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. You see, our hearts have been calibrated to desire a vision of the good life. And I would argue we've, they've been calibrated to desire a picture of life because we have been delighting in other things. In contrast to Psalm 37, to delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We read that and I'm, for a long time I thought that meant God will give me what I want. 
Delight myself in the Lord and he will give me what I want. And based on my internal experience, I knew that was not true. God did not seem to respond that way to me in my prayers. At least not all the time. But what does it say that he will give? He will give you desires. He will cause you to desire things that are an ally to your life with God. As opposed to, as verse 1 says, worrying about the wicked or envying those who do wrong to find your ultimate delight in the Lord. This means that the goal of our desire is to line all of our hopes and desires with Him and His, to desire what He desires, to hunger and thirst for Him, to long for His kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think the reality is that we are tempted to find our ultimate delight not in God, but in other things. Delight yourself in this and it will form within you the desires of your heart. Rather than allowing things to become that which we look through to see more of God, they become things we look to for fulfillment. We look through God to give us what we desire, but our goal of relationship with God is not Christ, it's the thing that we desire. Are you tracking with me? that distinction, that God, in essence, becomes more of a genie in the bottle. If I pray to him, he will give me that which I want. But I might argue in that case, we're not really worshiping him. We're worshiping our wants and our desires and asking him to bow down at our will. Rather than seeing good things as a blessing and a gift from God that points us to him, we look to them to be that which ultimately satisfies. God wants to form you and shape you into a person who does the right thing without even having to think about it. God wants to form you into one who longs for what he longs for, who hungers and thirsts for the presence of God, for justice and mercy, for love and kindness. Psychologist Timothy Wilson wagered in his book, Strangers to Ourselves, um, that only about, I'm going to leave this blank and I want you to guess, that only about blank percent of what we do in a given day is the outcome of conscious, deliberate choices we make. What percent of things that we do do you think are the result of conscious, deliberate choices? Anybody got a guess? 10%? Anybody else? 15? 5. 5%. These might be referred to as automaticities. Uh, like learning how to drive or how to eat or breathe. Uh, an example I would, I would think of would be trying to teach uh, our two-year-old the difference between me and you. Obvious to me, right? But you, you pointed a picture and you say, hey, buddy, that's you. And he goes, and it's him. He goes, that's you. N no, no, that's mm, you. <laughs> Another example would be like learning how to drive or ride a bike or eat, or breathe. Have you ever thought about how to breathe? And now you are and you're feeling short of breath? You breathe a lot. They become like second nature. I believe that's what God wants for us, where your natural dispensation is to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, to delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. But if you remember learning how to drive, it isn't quite so automatic, was it? We'll talk about this action piece of practice next week. But for today, I want you to consider this fundamental question. What do you want? What do you really want? And how do you think you're getting there? As James K.A. Smith said, it's not until we're shipwrecked that we realize we trusted faulty maps. 
But there's an ancient way, one that is proven faithful time and time again. In the short run, in Psalm 37, it seems like those who don't follow after the way of God are doing better, prospering in the land. But the promise is that in contrast to the wicked and ruthless people, flourishing like a tree in its native soil in a moment, that's in verse uh, 35 and 36, it says, when I looked again, they were gone. Though I searched for them, I could not find them. We see this contrasted in Psalm chapter 1, that those who do not follow the advice of the wicked and instead delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night, they are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither and they prosper in all they do. Our problem is perhaps not that we desire too much. As C.S. Lewis would say, it's perhaps that our desires are too weak and we are far too easily pleased. We go to say quick fix when I, really what we're longing for is something ultimate. That there are riches in the presence of God, past power, past money, past whatever you think you desire. In his presence, there is more. In his presence, your wounds can be healed. In his presence, your pain can be soothed. In his presence, you can experience the God who suffers with you in your pain and who promises to one day forever wipe away every tear from your eyes. In his presence, you encounter the one who desires you, not for what you offer him, but because he loves you and made you for a purpose. And I love this. He doesn't have to think about it. It's an automaticity for him. He loves you because that is who he is. His compass is toward love, existing in the love of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and pulling people into the gravitational center of this love that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, drawing you into the love of God and the love of all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in who? The Lord. The word there that's used is Yahweh, means I am. Delight yourself in the one who is, the one who was, the one who will be. It's getting at God is who he is. He has always been and always be the one who is worthy of all glory, all honor, and all praise. He is, he was, and will be forever through the ages. As Exodus 34 says that the Lord is the God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. That is what is true of him. As Zephaniah 3.17 says concerning the I am, your, the Lord your God is in your midst, the Lord being Yahweh, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with his gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So delight yourself not in what, but in who. In the Lord, the one who was and will be, the one who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness demonstrated through the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who both fully God and fully man came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins, taking the result of us going in the wrong direction, following our misguided internal compass, so that all who trust in him might be made right with God and invited to walk in the ways of God. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And as I was uh, working on this sermon, I just got a sense that there are some people who would be here today who are convinced in their hearts that God only wants to take from them 
not give, to deprive them, to take what they want from them. Certainly, you can find comfort in the scriptures. This passage in Psalm 37 is even dealing with that question of why does it seem that the bad people prosper and the good are struggling? If I may just remind us, God has good intentions for you. God has a good plan for you. God loves you. And I'm reminded of the words of the father to the older son in Luke 15, where the father said, everything I have is yours. So how do we delight ourselves in the Lord? There are multiple ways, but here's three from an organization we're part of called Practicing, uh, Practicing the Way from their practice of Sabbath, talking about delight. Three ways to delight. One, delight in God's world that he referred to as good, very good. To remember how many blessings populate our life, not in a negation of the pain. If you read through this whole psalm, you'd realize regularly it mentions the wicked, it mentions their schemes, it mentions the pain, it mentions all of these hard things that are going on, all the while saying this is true, and, and, as we talked about with Psalm 27 last week, the one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after well in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. If you read through that whole Psalm, that's what he asked for, but he's talking about there being war, about battle breaking out. He's talking about his father and mother, I think, abandoning him. And he says, still the one thing, this is all true, but the thing that I long for is to be in the presence of God. To delight in God's world. Neuroscientists tell us that the mind is drawn to the negative over the positive at the rate of something like 14 to 1. We have to be intentional to be grateful. And I want to distinguish, I've done it before, but I'll distinguish again. There's a difference between the practice of gratitude and toxic positivity. Toxic positivity would be an ignoring or ignoring of the pain or the bad, perhaps using phrases like, at least you, da 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 da. Gratitude is in the midst of all that is bad, still having things and saying to God what it is that you are grateful for. You can both acknowledge the pain and acknowledge the good. Both things can be true. So one, delight in God's world. Secondly, delight in God's word. This can be done through meditation on the scripture. There's a number of ways to do that. It can be done through reading through the scriptures, through Bible study, through promises that the Lord has given you. Um, and in talking about this, um, one thing that brings me excitement and joy that may or may not bring everybody excitement and, and, and joy is uh, when I'm studying the Bible, particularly for prepping a message, and there is something really fascinating about the structure of how it's orchestrated. This psalm, super cool. It's an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, meaning that it, like the different stances, go through different letters or begin with different letters, which we obviously miss in English. So verse four is the Hebrew letter bet. Well, I couldn't even hear what I said. So if I mispronounced it, so what, right? Um, we just read through the first, um, first couple letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Delight yourself in God's word. And then third, and probably most importantly, I would argue, is to delight yourself in God himself. And the Trinity, that we get to participate in the life of God, communion of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So how do we, how do we recalibrate our inner compass? One, recognize you have desire. You're not only a thinking person. You are a lover, a wanter, a desirer, desirer, desirer. I think that's how you say that. 
It's not a word, I don't think, but I don't think my document auto-corrected it, so maybe it is. You have desires within you that are conscious and desires that are unconscious, that are the, those that are good for you and those that are bad for you. Are you aware? Perhaps it's helpful. I'm just thinking of, um, let's just say you're driving in traffic, right? And you get cut off. What emotions come up in your minds? Anger, frustration, bitterness. Perhaps treat those with curiosity and ask, what is it actually that I want? And what is this trying to indicate to me? Treat it more so with curiosity and see. You have desire. And then ask the Spirit of God to work within you. Help me to long for what you long for. Help me to desire you more than I desire other things, which involves you recognizing that you need Him to reorient your heart and your desires. And the truth is, this side of the resurrection, we will have desires that are both an ally to our life with God and those that are an enemy to our life with God. There are certain things that we will, we will continuously desire to sin or not do what is best for us this side of eternity. I'm not trying to paint some unrealistic picture. You might look at this as how do you feed the desires that are good and starve the ones that are bad? Feed the spirit, starve the flesh. So a practice that you can implement this week is a practice of gratitude. Thank God for what he's done. And it might feel, if you're like me, it might feel cheesy at first. But keep doing it and see if it doesn't actually start to change the way that you see. That you start to see the good. That you start to see where it is that God is working in our midst. I'm going to invite Carly to come back up. <clears throat> As I invite us to delight ourselves in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. My, my hope and prayer for us is that we can become a people who just long for God. We long for the presence of God. We long for God to form within us desires that are in alignment with Him. That increasingly I want less of my ways and my will and I want more of His kingdom and His will to be done. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, would you give us perspective would you highlight to us what it is that we desire? And God, as you highlight that to us, will you highlight to us ways in which we're going to get those desires satiated by things that won't ultimately satisfy? May we realize ways in which we're trying to find our desire for security in other things that are leaving us feeling remarkably insecure. Would you highlight areas for us that we're going to to feel loved that are making us feel unloved and unliked? Would you highlight areas that we're going to to make us feel worthy that are making us suffer from imposter syndrome and feel unworthy? Holy Spirit, would you reveal these to us? Whatever is not of you that is within us, would you kill it within us to help us desire and long for you in your presence? God, may we see that in your presence there is a fullness of joy. There's peace that surpasses understanding. Lord, you are here with us now. May our hearts cry to be to be with you. To sit in your presence. 
No matter what comes my way, the one thing that I've asked of the Lord, the one thing that I will seek after is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon your beauty, O Lord, and to inquire in your temple, to learn about you, to discover you because you are good, you are worthy, you are perfect. And God, I thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus, that though our hearts have been misguided and going toward the wrong things, you sent him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. So God, I pray right now in this moment that you would just help us to see you, Jesus, to be captured by your beauty and your splendor. You are worthy of all glory, all honor, all attention, all affection. Lord, we confess that we've been captured by visions of the good life, by things that promise to fulfill us. And Lord, I don't want us to get to the end of our days and look at what we found and experience and realize it was not all that you had for us. So would you just be kind enough to highlight to us ways in which the systems we're operating are failing us? Would you highlight that for us right now? Holy Spirit, you are here. Speak to us in ways only you can. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching the service. We pray that it blessed you and helped you grow closer to God. If you are in the Nashville area, we'd love for you to join us sometime. If you're not in the Nashville area, we'd love to help you get connected with the local church if you don't already have one. We pray that God blesses you this week and that he grows you closer in your relationship with him and with your community, that he uses you in a powerful way to be a vessel of his good news in everywhere that you go. May God bless you.